Well, hello and welcome to the Between Movements podcast. This is episode 20, and I'm pretty excited about today's episode because I will be covering an article that Sergei Rachmaninoff wrote back in 1910 for the Etude magazine. It's entitled 10 Important Attributes of Beautiful Pianoforte Playing. Now, before I jump right into today's topic, I just want to remind you all that you can find me on YouTube and social media at josh.v.music you'll find videos of my playing, recordings, vlogs about practicing, educational content, and more. And for those who want to directly support my work, you can find me on Patreon at Josh V Music. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to please leave a review on this podcast so that more people can find it. Now, as a fan of Rachmaninoff, I wasn't even aware of this article until quite recently, thanks to Tonebase, who has a lot of information on classical music. They have a great podcast as well as lots of YouTube material. And I came across this when I was on their website. So as I mentioned, this was published in Etude Magazine back in 1910. And it says underneath the title, especially secured for the Etude from an interview with Sergei Rachmaninoff, Supervisor General of the Imperial Conservatories of Russia. If you want to see the original text from this, you can find it uh, on etudemagazine.com. I'm going to link it below. However, for some reason, they're missing number 9 and 10 from the 10 important attributes. So you can find that on Tonebase, which is sort of, uh, it seems to be a truncated version, a little bit abridged. But I'm going to go over all of this and give my thoughts on it. Now, Rachmaninoff's first important attribute of beautiful pianoforte playing is forming the proper conception of a piece. And I quote from the first paragraph, In undertaking the study of a new composition, it is highly important to gain a conception of the work as a whole. After all, one can never tell in print what can be communicated by the living teacher. In undertaking the study of a new composition, it is highly important to gain a conception of the work as a whole. One must comprehend the main design of the composer. Naturally, there are technical difficulties which must be worked out, measure by measure. But unless the student can form some idea of the work in its larger proportions, his finished performance may resemble a kind of musical patchwork. Behind every composition is the architectural plan of the composer. The student should endeavor, first of all, to discover this plan, and then he should build in the manner in which the composer would have him build. Now, when I read this, I was pleasantly surprised because for those who are aware of my YouTube channel in my analysis series, when I talk about Rachmaninoff's third concerto, I talk quite a bit about understanding the overarching concept of this piece, not just being able to play it, but understanding the larger framework. Uh, the structure of it, the architecture of it. And Rachmaninoff even uses that word, the architectural plan of the composer. When you're dealing with especially large-scale works, without understanding how the pieces are connected, it can sound a little bit random. Like he says, it begins to sound a little bit like a patchwork. Now, Rachmaninoff goes on to say, how can the student form the proper conception of the work as a whole? Now, doubtless, the best way is to hear it performed by some pianist whose authority as an interpreter cannot be questioned. However, many students are so situated that this course is impossible. Now, obviously, in 1910, recording was at its very, very early stages. Rachmaninoff would go on himself to record all of the concerti and many of his own works. So I believe that if he had given this interview several years or decades later, he might have suggested familiarizing oneself with recordings. 
But he does say that the best way is to just listen to great pianists. Uh, he says those whose interpretation cannot be questioned, whose authority. So we are very privileged today to be in a time where we can hear so many great performances. Uh, we just have to go on YouTube or Spotify or Apple Music or wherever it is you go to listen to music and you'll find a bunch of great recordings. Now he continues, it is also often quite impossible for the teacher who is busy teaching from morning to night to give a rendering of the work that would be absolutely perfect in all of its details. However, one can gain something from the teacher who can, by his genius, give the people an idea of the artistic demands of the piece. Again, with the modern recording technology, there are not just good performances, there are perfected, quote-unquote, performances because of the editing that one can do so if you miss a couple notes here and there you can go in and patch those in and it will sound uh, perfect from start to finish if the student has the advantage of hearing neither the virtuoso nor the teacher he need not despair if he has talent talent ah that is the great thing in all musical work if he has talent he will see with the eyes of talent that wonderful force which penetrates all artistic mysteries and reveals the truths as nothing else possibly can. Then he grasps, as if by intuition, the composer's intentions in writing the work, and like the true interpreter, communicates these thoughts to his audience in their proper form. Now, the topic of talent to me is such an interesting one, and one that I've been studying for years. Um, I might have to do an entirely separate podcast on this. I highly recommend this book, The Talent Code, by Daniel Coyle, and it challenges the notions that we have about talent. He goes in depth and studies this in great detail. But back in these days, Rachmaninoff had this view. I know that Rubinstein, when he was interviewed, also said that the most important thing that a student needs is talent. Rachmaninoff also uses the word intuition. He says that a student can grasp by intuition the composer's intentions in writing the work. And so I take this to mean that the talent he speaks of is more a talent of understanding the music, understanding this idea of structure, like he says, the artistic mysteries. And it's not just about technical proficiency. However, number two we go on is, in fact, technical proficiency. Rachmaninoff says, It goes without saying that technical proficiency should be one of the first acquisitions of the student who would become a fine pianist. It is impossible to conceive a fine playing that is not marked by clean, fluent, distinct, and elastic technique. Now he goes on to talk about technique as it is taught in Russia. He says, In the music schools of Russia, great stress is laid upon technique. Possibly this may be one of the reasons why some of the Russian pianists have been so favorably received in recent years. He says the system is elastic in that, although all students are obliged to go through the same course, special attention is given to individual cases. Technique, however, is at first made a matter of paramount importance. All students must become technically proficient. None are excused. The course is nine years in duration. During the first five years, the student gets most of his technical instruction from a book of studies by Hannon, which is used very extensively in the conservatories. In fact, this is practically the only book of strictly technical studies employed. All of the studies are in the key of C. They include scales, arpeggios, and other forms of exercises in special technical design. 
Now, my knowledge about the Russian school of piano playing comes primarily from the fact that I was able to study with the late, great Nina Lolchuk, who studied at Moscow Conservatory. And so she got to see firsthand many of the great Russian pianists of the day. She got to see Galels and Richter, and she studied alongside Vladimir Ashkenazi. I could go on with a list of great pianists, but... The way that she trained me was uh, very Russian, and she stuck to the way that she was traditionally taught. And when you watch Russian pianists play, I thought it was pretty interesting because I was watching the Rachmaninoff competition, and the Russian pianists have a very particular way of approaching the piano even when they sit down, even when they start a piece. You have to have a physical command of the instrument that is very thorough, very understood. It's not left up to chance. You you have to know why you're doing what you're doing. Now, there are very particular elements of the Russian school which are sort of characteristic of that type of learning. One of them would be playing with weight, weight from the shoulder, weight from the arm, weight from the back, how you sit, how you have your fingers in a certain position and being able to change your technique based upon the change in the sound that you want. A lot of pianists and piano teachers will compare technique to something you might find in, say, a martial art because there are so many different martial arts. They all teach you to throw a punch differently. They all teach you to throw a kick differently. But the goal is always the same. It's to defeat the opponent. So the purpose of technique is not just so that you can throw it in a technically correct way, although there are, I guess, arguably some martial arts where they score you based on style. But when it comes down to it, the point is, is it an effective tool for fighting? And I view technique the same way. Someone might say that I'm not technically doing something correct in the way that I lift my finger or the way that I roll my arm, but all that matters at the end of the day is being able to play the music convincingly, to be able to play it consistently, come back day after day, repeat the same thing, and free of injury. And so that's the most important thing in my mind when it comes to technique. I just happened to learn this Russian school And a lot of it works very well for me. So when I teach my students, I tend to teach from that Russian pedagogical system. Rachmaninoff does say he believes that the matter of insisting upon a thorough technical knowledge is a very vital one. The mere ability to play a few pieces does not constitute musical proficiency. It is like those music boxes, which possess only a few tunes. The student's technical grasp should be all-embracing. Now, moving on to number three of Rachmaninoff's 10 important aspects of beautiful pianoforte playing, he says his third aspect is proper phrasing. An artistic interpretation is not possible if the student does not know the laws underlying the very important subject of phrasing. Unfortunately, many editions of good music are found wanting in proper phrase markings, and some of these phrase markings are erroneously applied. Consequently, the only safe way is for the student to make a special study of this important branch of musical art. In the olden days, phrase signs were little used. Bach used them very sparingly. It was not necessary to mark them in those times, for every musician who counted himself a musician could determine the phrases he played. Now that's very true. If you study Baroque music, not just phrase markings, but markings of any kind were very sparing, and part of the reason is because 
in addition to knowing how to play, musicians had to know how to improvise. And I talk about this a little bit when I wrote my dissertation on improvisation. It was expected that uh, the performers would have a sufficient understanding to be able to create their own phrases. But it doesn't surprise me that Rachmaninoff puts this as one of his top 10, even the third most important thing. Because when you're dealing with classical music, particularly from Russian composers, one of the first things you'll notice are that the phrases tend to go on and on and on. The melodies lead into other melodies, which lead into other melodies. When I'm playing Rachmaninoff, sometimes I get the sense or the imagery that I'm on a river and I'm just going where the current takes me. So you might have one very placid, serene, calm section which leads into a series of rapids and a large waterfall and any sort of variation that you might find in nature, but it just keeps going and going and going. And there are very few places where it just reaches a dead stop. If you contrast this to say the music of Beethoven or Mozart, you usually find that the phrases are much more uh, symmetrical in length. You'll have a four measure phrase, an eight measure phrase, a maybe a 16 measure phrase, a couple two measure phrases, and then a rest. They are punctuated much more. However, the Russian music tends to just flow and have odd phrase lengths. Maybe you'll have a five measure phrase or a 13 measure phrase. I think this can, in some sense, even be related to the Russian language, which tends to be very polysyllabic. You have lots of syllables in the words, lots of consonants, not as many vowels. So it's just kind of a flowing forward that translates into the music itself. Now, number four is regulating the tempo. And this fourth aspect of piano playing somewhat surprised me that it made the list. One, because it seems like it should be, in a sense, self-evident to be able to regulate tempo. But on another level, Rachmaninoff's music tends to have a great deal of rubato and push and pull. He will constantly change the tempo within a piece of music. You might have three or four different tempo markings on a single page. So it seems like there's a greater sense of freedom than you might find in other composers. However, he says, if a fine musical feeling or sensitiveness must control the execution of the phrases, the regulation of the tempo demands a kind of musical ability no less exacting. Although in most cases the tempo of a given composition is now indicated by means of the metronomic markings, the judgment of the player must also be brought frequently into requisition. He cannot follow the tempo marks blindly, although it is usually unsafe for him to stray very far from these all-important musical signposts. However, upon reading this section, it makes a little bit more sense what he means when he says regulating the tempo. He does not mean just sticking at a certain tempo and not deviating from it. In fact, a little bit of the opposite. He says... The metronome itself must not be used with eyes closed, as we should say it in Russia. The player must use discretion. I do not approve of continual practice with the metronome. The metronome is designed to set the time, and if not abused, is a very faithful servant. However, it should only be used for this purpose. The most mechanical plane imaginable can proceed from those who make themselves slaves to this little musical clock, which was never intended to stand like a ruler over every minute of the student's practice time. In a sense, I think he 
would probably agree with Liszt's idea of tempo and rubato. When speaking of rubato, Liszt would use the image of a tree, how a tree is rooted in the ground. It has strong roots in the main tempo and the pulse, but can blow and bend in the wind as long as it does not blow away or blow out the roots. I think this understanding of tempo regulation, as he would call it, or rubato, is one of the great contributions to the musical world of a lot of the Russian pianists. And when I listen to the pianists who went to this school, Rachmaninoff, Horowitz, Gilels, Richter, etc., Ashkenazi, the way that they have a kind of fluid understanding of the tempo that still makes sense, it doesn't deviate too far. It's not, it's not a loose tempo, and it's not just sloppy playing, but it's bending it in these wonderful curved ways that bring the music to life in a way that just does not work when it's played metronomically, especially with Russian music itself. Coming in at number five for Rachmaninoff is character in playing. He says, too few students realize that there is continual and marvelous opportunity for contrast in playing. Every piece is a piece unto itself. It should therefore have its own peculiar interpretation. Now, this might seem obvious. However, those who are musicians or those who have attended very many recitals, especially student recitals, oftentimes everything they play sounds exactly the same. He says, there are performers whose playing seems all alike. It is like meals served in some hotels. Everything brought to the table has the same taste. Of course, a successful performer must have a strong individuality, and all of his interpretations must bear the mark of this individuality. But at the same time, he should seek variety constantly. A Chopin ballade must have quite a different interpretation from a Scarlatti Capriccio. Now, I agree this is immensely important for anyone seeking to have any sort of relevance in the classical world. And it's also one of the chief primary difficulties of being a classical musician because we're dealing with music that spans over hundreds of years. So the classical style, the Baroque style, Romantic style, Impressionistic style, they all have different characteristics, different qualities, different sounds, just like visual art. You can tell the difference between an Impressionistic painting, an abstract painting, a Cubist painting, etc. You should be able to hear a difference in just several seconds of, of the music to know that this piece has a very different character than another piece. That, to me, is one of the most fun and exciting parts of performing. And I love when the audience latches onto that and I get the comments that there was so much variety in the playing. That's really what I'm trying to do because more so than other music, classical music can tell a narrative and a story. It can be a drama or an epic. And in order for that to happen, just like in a good movie, there needs to be changes from scene to scene to scene. Otherwise, it begins to sound a little bit monotonous. And as I mentioned before, part of the Russian approach in technique is being able to play with variety of styles. So one of the things that I was taught was when to use flatter fingers, when to use more curved fingers, when to play from the elbow or the wrist or the arm, when to play with more weight, when to play on the surface of the key. It's all to create different feelings 
different characters, different tone qualities and colors in the plane. Have you ever attended a performance where you were just struck by the sound, by the tone quality of a pianist, or maybe not even a pianist, of a singer, of a violin player, of an orchestra? Those moments tend to stick with people. And even if you can't remember the specifics, the feeling is left there. And I think that's what Rachmaninoff is talking about when he mentions character in playing. Anyways, those are the first five of ten important attributes of beautiful pianoforte playing by Sergei Rachmaninoff. I hope this was interesting for you as it was for me. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me through DMs or leave a comment or send me an email at joshvigranpiano at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for all of your support. I love you guys, and I will see you on the next episode.